Welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large. Coming at you without video this week, but still with a wonderful and brilliant analysis on audio, uh, on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and even on YouTube, even though there's no video this week. We just had some technical difficulties as as we adjust to uh, some things, and uh, so it's audio this week. But this is a podcast, so I get to get away with that. I am joined this week by Dr. Jeff Wassel and by uh, John P. Capitalist, my uh, good friends who have been working with me on evaluating or discussing or analyzing Hubbard's data series, uh, issues of policy letters having to do with logic and reason and doing organizational analysis in order to try to fix where things go off the rails. Welcome to the show, boys. Hey, Chris. Thanks. Glad to be here. Awesome. So this week is um, from our plans. This is going to be our final episode on this. We have gone through uh, in earlier podcast episodes the origination of the data series policies, Hubbard's thoughts about logic and reason and business acumen. Um, uh, John P. has done a <laughs> done some really <laughs> championship criticism of some of Hubbard's uh, uh, not so finer points on that. And we have also covered um, the Operation Snow White, which was based on Hubbard's use of the data series. And we're now moving forward much closer to the present. Um, And uh, Jeff also did some wonderful analysis in terms of some of the intelligence gathering mechanisms that Hubbard put together called the Guardian's Office back in the 70s, which has now been converted to the Office of Special Affairs and still basically does the same kind of um, you know, I, I don't want to say inept intelligence work because they can be quite good at some of what they do, but uh, certainly not uh, in the long term, not very constructive for Scientology overall. I think, I think capering is a great way to describe that, Chris. They're great at capers. There we go. In fact, I've heard that Scientology uses that term for some of this low-level stuff. It does. Noisy ops, as it were. So, yeah. That's right. That's exactly right. Now, interestingly, we're going to talk about something that went down in the 1990s in Scientology that really changed the course of where Scientology was going in a huge way. This literally took it where it was going one way down down the railroad tracks, if you want to make this um, a, a image, and and then Miscavige sort of took a sharp right turn and started taking it in a very different direction. And um, he is actually, I have come to find out, David Miscavige, the leader of Scientology, is not trained as a data series evaluator. So let me just sort of unpack that for a second. Mm-hmm. Um, from, you know, from the standpoint of somebody who was in Scientology, you know, that's probably a big deal that Miscavige is essentially pretending to have, you know, command of some piece of Scientology tech, in this case, admin tech, that he doesn't actually have. Um, on the other hand, you know, to somebody on the outside, this sounds a lot like, you know, bitching and moaning because he's not a fully certified alchemist. Well, only in that, the, the point I actually wanted to make with that was not to, um, it's actually not, you know, a bad thing that he's not trained on Hubbard's data series. It means he hasn't necessarily been exposed to all that false information. 
The reason I brought it up is because he used the formatting of data series analysis when he wrote up the th uh -huh. the the issue to imp and I think he did it so as to impress Scientologists and convince them that he did know what he was talking about because they would naturally assume that he is trained on the data series and he knows all about this stuff. And that's the only reason so he I knows brought enough, that up. He knows enough to be dangerous and is using it as a means of legitimizing what he comes out with as far as his his mandates, etc. I think that's, yeah. that's what and, came out to me in reading this and just our discussions before today. Well, you know, it's, it's essentially, you know, he's exactly following what you would expect of a second generation cult leader, somebody who inherited the mantle, which is that he has to touch on everything out there, you know, to have his legitimacy. So, you know, in, in making the change that he's making here, for whatever reason that he sort of in his internal psyche is, is thinking, he's got to lay claim to the fact that not only is this the correct decision, but it was correctly decided. So he does absolutely have to use the data series in order to shore up his legitimacy. He just can't pop out and say, ha-ha, I've had this idea. Let's try this and see what happens. But also, I think he's using it as a way to say, hey, there's a new sheriff in town, and if you read through this, it's, it's this is the voice of Miscavige in this IG-22 doc that we'll, we'll talk about. This is not Hubbard. In fact, Hubbard is nowhere near here. And we'll touch on this when we look at you know the comparisons to uh, mob succession and other stuff. But it's clear to me that this is his way. If you peel back the, the onion here, he's saying, listen up, you guys. This is uh, it's all about me now. The old school's done. You know, the king is dead. Long live, long live the king, i.e. me. I, I agree completely with that analysis. I think that's exactly what's going on. And what I wanted to do is just give a little bit of uh, background here on how he actually did that. Because this is a very significant event in Scientology's history. This is not just another thing that happened that is just another abusive situation. This was actually systemically, um, this was a paradigm shift for Scientology. And it's happened in May of 1996. Now, the way that David Miscavige issues orders and directions to Scientology broadly is he doesn't just, he's, he, he does his presentations on stage, but when he's actually issuing orders and directions down to Scientology management, he does it with a kind of issue that is called an Inspector General Network Bulletin. And there's a little bit to unpack there, a little bit of history there that I wanted to give because I thought it might be relevant to what we're talking about. In the 1980s, when David Miscavige took over the Religious Technology Center, he made himself the chairman of the board of RTC, and you know that's just sort of this generic post title that gives him no real obligations or responsibilities, but all the power you could ever want, because he's the chairman of the board. So he also appointed four people under him in the RTC, who served the function of inspector generals. He had, a, he had a man named Greg Wilhair, who as far as I know is still holding this position, who was the inspector general. And under him, he had three juniors, an inspector general for tech, an inspector general for administration, and an inspector general for ethics. And that was Mark Yeager over administration, Ray Midoff over tech, and Marty Rathbun over ethics. This is all in the, 19, in the late 1980s. These guys didn't last longer than about three or four years 
before Miscavige got rid of them, just like he's gotten rid of all of Scientology management. But at the time, setting up this Inspector General network was a big deal. And I was curious, what is an Inspector General in the real world? I mean, Jeff, you have military experience on this. How does that work in that realm? What an IG does essentially in the military, in the business world, is enforce compliance with a company's rules, its ethics, its morale, all the things that make it function as a viable concern. Uh, specifically in the military, it's uh, usually up there at the you know at a command level. It's very high in the organization. I mean, at the Pentagon, there's a whole there's a huge IG staff that is tasked with you know uncovering sexism or fraud, waste and abuse by contractors, or uh, you know they're they're the uh, they're the hammer on behavior. Uh, they look to uncover uh, and you know through administrative reviews, inquiries, investigations, and stuff to resolve complaints that maybe whistleblower complaints coming up from the troops about corruption. You know, say you know there's an officer that's showing favoritism or there's racial comp. It's you know it's a it's a very a very specific, very important role. And uh, to that, it's the same thing in, in business, really. Um, but it tends to be more about uh, you know compliance, say and with the SEC or with accounting rules, gap rules, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I'll tell you, it's, um, yeah, so there are, in civilian government agencies, there are inspector generals that are looking for, you know, criminal behavior on contracts and, you know, any of these sorts of deals. And yeah, in, in my business, uh, Global Capitalism Headquarters has a compliance department. And um, the last thing you ever want to hear, uh, well, it's only it's only infinitesimally short of a bunch of FBI guys with drawn guns stopped by while you were out to lunch. Um, only slightly. And there's yellow that. tape all over your office door now. <laughs> right, and uh, only slightly less uh, dangerous to one's career is. Oh, by the way, the global head of compliance stopped by for a friendly chat. Right. Right. Exactly. And, well, uh, that fits in. That fits in perfectly with Miscavige's positioning of what RTC is to Scientology overall. Is this in, so? You know. and I think, Chris, real quick, as we were talking about earlier too, before I forget, um, IG people tend to be very methodical, very measured, very uh, disciplined in their approach. They're not they're not screamers. They're not yellers. Conversely, you know, compared to our friend, Mister uh, Chairman of the Board. So oh, it's when. When they when they have in Scientology speak fired a mission, uh, they certainly do love all the guns and badges shit. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Well, it was, yeah. like I said, it certainly uh, it certainly fits in. But I have another question for you that I think is actually kind of relevant to RTC and what David Mis where David Miscavige has taken this. Do inspector generals ever take over the management of an organization that they are investigating or inspecting? No, it would be like, um, you know, it's a, what's called a staff function, right? That yeah. It's like human resources. It's like, um, you know, facilities management. Um, you know, compliance in a brokerage firm is an essential function, but that guy is never going to be CEO. You know, there's never a path from compliance to CEO. And, you know, that's sort of the general rule, you know, that – and so the idea of having essentially a compliance goon – be in charge of an organization when an organization really, you know, most, most CEOs typically start out as sales guys or marketing guys. 
Um, occasionally, in certain types of industries, um, the CEO will be a finance guy. But in general, um, you know, that might be the case in like, um, like an apartment building company like Avalon Bay Properties. The CEO is not going to be the director of construction. The, that's, that's a staff function. The CEO is going to be a guy who understands how to get deals done. So that might be actually promoted from the CFO. But basically, in most companies, the, 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 the CEO is going to be a guy who knows how to talk to customers. Um, in Silicon Valley, they may be an engineer, but they'll still have customer skills. You've got to grow the business. That's what it's about. Hmm. I think a way to look at this is maybe look at on the org chart where an IG or compliance person would live. Um, after 9-11 with the, the, the huge focus on money laundering and countering the finance of terror, compliance is, uh, has become a board level position in most organizations worth their salt now. And to Brent's point, uh, or uh, to JP's point about uh, you know, the accession or succession as, you know, leadership, what you'll find is the IG or a compliance person is certainly uh, a valued advisor or someone that's going to come in and set the tone for the way uh, the CEO should, the, co- the company should behave uh, as led by a CEO or a commanding officer or whatever. Uh, and I think they, what would happen in a typical IG investigation of the military, say uh, a real, in fact, just recently there was a huge scandal in the um, in the Philippines and in Singapore where uh, a guy by literally the name of Fat Louie had his fingers in a lot of pies of uh, significant <laughs> commanding, the command presence of the 7th Fleet down there. Uh, he was making boatloads of money off of ship repair because he had gotten himself in deep with these guys through the use of prostitutes, uh, trips, you know, all the typical graft that goes on in corruption. Well, so the Navy IG went down there and for about five years kind of poked around, used the Naval Criminal Investigator Service, the NCIS. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very complex function if you're looking at a large IG investigation, it's like a RICO investigation. It would be a really good parallel. Okay. You're looking at mean motive opportunity, you know, what's what's going on. But at the end of the day, it's usually looking you're looking at, you know, financial crime, uh, you know, so kind of tort more so than, you know, I mean certainly criminal indictments will come out of it. But what happens that then is that gets bundled up, the IG goes to the ultimate authority, you say that in this case the chief of naval operations, or if it's really big if it's something endemic across you know multiple branches of the military to the head of the joint chiefs of staff and says hey you need to fix this and here's our recommendations and in the corporate world it would be you know this is where somebody goes out and hires a mckenzie or a kroll or whatever to come in and and make recommendations to fix this you always want to uh, ensure that, that there's a sense of propriety through the use of objective means rather than somebody that's intra-organizational right you want somebody that can come in and, and objectively look at what the problem is rather than somebody that's got skin in the game hence you know, to JP's point about um, you're not going to have this is not going to be somebody that is in the direct line of command in an organization. They're going to be an advisor or on a board or somewhere that is providing advisory rather than um, direct supervision uh, of, of a given organization. Right. Well, yeah, the t- think- by the time this got written in '96, Miscavige had already usurped control of Scientology internationally mm-hmm. and was basically. Yeah, I mean, he's ten years in at this point. I just wanted to add one one detail. Right. The the issue really is that the guy in charge of the company is the chief skullcracker for bad behavior. 
does that make it, you know, it's just, that's so counter to how you think you don't have to be an expert on organizational theory to understand that that is so counter to how any company elsewhere in the world is run. What that does is that sets the character of the organization, right? Yeah. That, you know, Google, the fact that Google was founded or by, that was founded by and run by, you know, Sergey and Larry, and then Eric Schmidt as the adult supervision, um, Eric's got a PhD in computer science and, you know, he was the CEO of several successful companies before he ended up at Google, but that is, that has a profound impact on Google's culture. It's an engineering driven culture. It's not a bunch of marketing weenies sitting around doing focus groups and saying, you know, how can we write the next cool ad? Right. And so the, the, the culture in the background of the guy at the top absolutely has a major influence on the organization. So when essentially the guy at the top of Scientology is the head skullcracker, that's going to tell you a lot about where the organization goes. And that's, and that's, we've seen exactly where that's taken Scientology. And this was a, this was a point where Miscavige really became front and center in the public eye um, in, by 1996. He had been making some um, forays into the public. You know, he had, he had gone on Nightline. He had been starting to speak um, in the in the late 1980s. He started speaking to Scientologists directly at public events, but this was the place where he made a he really put himself forward as someone who could and would be willing to make um, very very big decisions on a technical level with Scientology. In other words, not just how do you run you know where's the ship going, but how are the ships built. You know, and that. Well, I think he's almost—he's—he's—he's he's, he's implying doctrinal authority here. Yes. And that's huge. You know, I mean, that's when somebody, especially in an organization, you know, a, a cult or something that is, you know, belief-driven, right? At the bottom, at, at, at the bottom rung of the ladder, it's or the foundation, I should say, it's all about the purity of the doctrine or the belief. And so again, we're looking at Cobb or chairman of the board is coming on. He's he's putting his imprimatur on this and saying, "Listen up, this is the new writ moving forward, and this is what we're going to do, and this is we're going to focus on auditing, or we're going to, you know, the golden age of tech, all these different things that he's got in this document. I mean, it really is kind of a a, a restart, if you will, of Scientology and." the Miscavige era, right? That, I mean, that's exactly you were right. there, Chris. I know it's, you yeah. probably saw a lot of this. And, well, yeah, and, I mean, I was... There's uh, a lot of false starts in that restart, too, I would submit. <laughs> well, this was this was a very, very big deal at the time. I was called to flag um, and briefed for three straight days by Miscavige personally. Uh, a whole room of us were um, about this, about this issue and about these... Uh, the, the why that he found, if, if you remember the terminology we use in our early data can, series Can I ask you real issues. quick, how did he deliver that? Was it emphatic? Was it in a, oh, yeah. in a, in a uh, you know, a, what, I mean, what was the manner? How did he, what was the, 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 the vibe in the room and, and the way that he, he brought this to you, everybody? How did he bring this well, to the Well, David Miscavige it, doesn't have a soft, fluffy side. He, he yeah. delivered it in a very... Rat a tat tat, boom boom boom. This is how it is. Okay, so kind of that's typical staccato, uh, miscavige. You know, no breathing room. Get it done. What's next? Type thing. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. In fact, one person was even at the very beginning of the briefing. One person was taking notes, 
and he and he literally eyeballed laser eyeballed that person and said you're not listening put that pen down and the guy was like you know oh do and uh and miscavige was like all of this has already been written down you'll get it in writing you need to be listening right now and that 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 was the intensity of the thing is he wanted all, all eyeballs on him through the entire thing uh, and he was going to give us all the what for that we had been failing so miserably. And the entire attitude of it was that everybody in that room had failed in some fashion because we had not come up with this ourselves, which, of course, was impossible. Uh, yeah. we, we never could have. Now, how did he go about doing this? He basically, um, well, I'll just read from this issue because he said, at first, he gave a three-hour briefing to all the public. I mean, after we had our week-long thing at FLAG, then he did the public briefing, and it was a three-hour-long presentation. And when you then, say public, do you mean to, to staff or to public Scientologists? No, public, to the public. The okay. staff briefing was to us, and then he went okay. and gave this huge public briefing where everyone internationally got the, got the word. And he says, and it was at the May 9th celebration, which is the anniversary of the publication of Dianetics. And he said, I announced training breakthroughs that will launch a new golden age of tech for Scientology. Numerous events beginning nearly a year ago have brought us to a position today where we have the greatest potential for technical results in our history. The events I am referring to concern the massive investigation and research to determine exactly what is required for the making of 100% perfect auditors in any organization and in sufficient quantity to actually clear the planet. Now, what I find fascinating in, in hindsight, looking at that paragraph, is that he basically implies or, or states when he said, uses words like breakthrough and research and investigation, is he's basically putting out that L. Ron Hubbard's policies and technology were not adequate to accomplish this purpose well yeah it's heretical it, it, i mean it actually is now a lot of people have noted that later when the basics came out and 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 the rewrite of all of the basic books of scientology went down that miscavige stood on a stage and said well l ron hubbard didn't catch all these errors and i had to go in and do it and therefore, L, you know, and L. Ron Hubbard clearly never looked at his own books because he missed that all this stuff had been missed in the translation and in the, in, you know, and the, the typesetting and everything of his books. And now we went and fixed all that. And people um, criticized and correctly saw that Miscavige was literally rewriting L. Ron Hubbard and calling L. Ron Hubbard a bit of a moron for not even having looked at his own books during his lifetime that he would have not, you know, caught all these errors that supposedly existed in his own books. But it actually starts back here where he's calling L. Ron Hubbard a moron a bit because he's saying, well, L. Ron Hubbard's policies in tech weren't adequate to make 100% perfect auditors in sufficient quantity to clear the planet. And so I have to come along and fix what L. Ron Hubbard didn't get right. I think he's a little um, delicate about doing that. And yes. if you look at the why is so the the first why you know because we recall the data series is about finding the why that something's broken or yes. potentially that something's going right and 
So yes, the, the, the whole point of this is exactly that, to make 100% perfect, I'm reading here, 100% yep. perfect auditors in any organization in sufficient quantity to actually clear the planet. And the why is not that Hubbard was wrong, it's insufficient drilling to obtain perfection. Yes. And so in other words, it's, it's actually you, the auditors, are lazy slackers who aren't doing your homework. And then well, there are more lies that are built on Yes and no. Okay, now the reason why I, I would normally say yes, except for how Miscavige went about solving this problem. He didn't just say, oh, you guys aren't drilling enough, you need to drill more. He said and asserted that the, um, the handling called for drills that are sufficiently thorough to achieve nothing short of perfection in an auditor. Miscavige literally created out of whole cloth new technology, new methods and procedures to train auditors that Hubbard apparently was too stupid to come up with or hadn't recognized that this needed to be done during the entire course of decades of work that Hubbard did to make auditors. Hubbard came yeah, up so with his own study technology, which included a lot more than just looking up words in a dictionary. He, you know, he, he, he borrowed that idea from somebody else or plagiarized it, but he actually made a number of films. He did a lot of work on, on the, the methodology of how you train somebody. And the whole outcome of this handling that Miscavige came up with was to change everything Hubbard did quite radically. And, yeah. and so that's why I, I'm sort of harping on this business of he was actually invalidating much of Hubbard's work when he put this forward. Yeah, no, he was. He's clearly doing that. Yes, and I even as a Neverian, I absolutely understand that this was a major, major shift in how auditing took place. But he's not doing it overtly no. invalidating Hubbard because he would have, you know, a mutiny on his hands because I think a lot of the auditors consider themselves the keeper of Hubbard's flame. So uh, maybe this is a the place to start talking about. Um, organizational behavior or uh, what I, I've always thought is the, the you know, Miscavige's coup d'etat, basically mm -hmm. taking Scientology over from the last vestiges of the Hubbard era, if you will. This is as much about power as it is about doctrine. Yes. You know, this is, this is, this is Miscavige coming along and saying, again, the new sheriff in town, but let's look at a parallel that I've always drawn to Scientology, and that's the behavior of organized crime or the mob. Mm -hmm. And I look at specifically the succession in the Gambino crime family, particularly from the, the era of Paul Castellano to John Gotti coming along and basically shooting Castellano on the street and taking over because of differences in the way that the business was being run and also you know philosophical differences about the organization you know the idea of you know young turks if you will miscavige was always a scientology young turk you know he was there with hubbard helping him as you know his little film goo, you know kind of his gopher and all this but you know he was this guy's a clever guy he's street smart and he's watching how this is going. He knows where the power lies. More importantly, knows where the skeletons are buried. He also knows what pushes Hubbard's buttons, as well as you know who his enemies are, what the power structure is around him. You know the brokers and other people like that. And this is what Gotti did. He looked at Castellano and says, you know, this guy's weak. 
You know, he's and it's interesting. He, um, Castellano, Paul Castellano was very Hubbard-like in that uh, he tried to position himself as a businessman, just like Hubbard tried to say, "I'm not a science fiction writer. I'm the leader of a, I'm, you know, I'm an adept at a variety of different things. I'm the leader of this great world movement." And you know, he's reinventing himself. Castellano reinvents himself from a street-level mobster to a mafia kingpin. But toward the end, he gets enamored with the money, with the prestige, with the wealth and starts distancing himself from the street soldiers and other people in the organization that got him to where he is, much like Hubbard went into seclusion. So when there's a power vacuum like that, what's going to happen? You're going to have a guy like Miscavige or Gotti in the mob case come along and take control. And he's going to lay down the law. You know, mafia in, in the old school, what they called the mustache peeps. You know, you didn't sell drugs. You, you know, you kept the murder and the mayhem within the mob. You know, civilians, if you will, were untouchable. You didn't sleep with your buddy's wife. That's what you had. Mr. All these caveats and codes, you know, omerta, all this stuff. You know, and the, omerta in Scientology is keeping Scientology working, right? That's, that's the right. code. At the end of the day, that's what drives all this stuff. That's right. So... You have, you have Gotti come along and say, you know, well, you know, Castellano's letting people, you know, that crew sell dope, why can't we? Well, in, in Miscavige's terms, you know, he said, well, how come the brokers have this power when I've got my faction that wants to do this? We have other ways that we think Scientology should be going forward. So he strikes when the iron's hot. The chaos of Hubbard around Hubbard's death. You know, he consolidates power. He's not above, you know, putting some concrete shoes on people in the form of altering wills, doing all this dirty stuff under the hood to, to, to create a new narrative that gives him the legitimacy, you know, tacitly and overtly to assume the role of the capo de tutti capo of Scientology, right? Same thing that Gotti does. And so the parallels are very much, you know, in line with new rules, new organization, new norms, all this stuff. And in Scientology, or in Miscavige's case here, it's IG-22. In Gotti's time, it was, you know, Sammy the Bull going out and reasserting the control that uh, Gotti was putting on the old, the old crew, the old core, if you will, and saying, yeah, all bets are off now. Uh, we can so we're going to sell drugs. We're going to you know go out and deal with the Irish mob. All this stuff that everybody else just said, no, 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 we don't do that. That's old. You know, this is the old school. Right. So, changing of the guard, Young Turks, revolution, bang, here we are. Yep, exactly. If I was going to try to explain this in the simplest possible terms, I think I would come down to just these couple sentences in um, the bulletin that Miscavige issued here to explain what Miscavige's version of everything you just said there was as far as the change in Scientology. And he says here, the handling is to create an exact passing standard all supervisors can adhere to, and that passing standard is perfection. Instead of letting students go through meter drills until they have a win, we require they be perfect. Now, that standard of perfection is a very high bar. No mistakes, no errors, no flubs. You cannot screw up once. That changed everything about how Scientology auditors were trained. Because previously they had been trained until they felt good about what they, their knowledge and what they were doing enough so that you could push them into an auditing room and make them actually audit somebody. So was that a, when you say feel good, was that something subjective? I mean, there's yeah. certainly... 
objective qualifications, but I mean, that only goes so far, right? I mean, so you're, what I'm hearing is that it was a kind of a hybrid. You have, here's your base standard, then on top of that, a really good auditor has a feel for the whole process above and beyond that that makes them feel confident enough to go in and do this and improve. Well, here's, here's, the, here's the night and day difference here. According to Hubbard, an auditor is somebody who audits. You actually have to go audit. In or, and he talked about this in lectures. This was not something you had to read between the lines to hear about. Hubbard was very clear about the fact that he wanted auditors to get thrown in and you audit. And I don't care if you do a perfect job or not, as long as you do a job that gets the person through whatever it is that you're trying to get them through the counseling session. And, and however... You have to start somewhere, right? right? Rather than being intimidated by this huge, you know, this unrealistic aspiration, we're saying, hey, just get out there and do it, right? Learn on the job. Exactly right. Because there is no substitute for real life experience. You can drill in a course no. room all day long, 10, 20, 30 different scenarios that a preclear might give you in an auditing session, but there's no substitute for going in the session and actually doing it and seeing what happens, because believe me, whatever you think a preclear is going to do in an auditing session, they're going to do ten other things that you didn't predict. So Hubbard's attitude yeah, I mean, about it was a, always get in there and do it. Just get your hands dirty, and you'll learn as you go. And you'll you need to learn enough before you get started that you have some competency. But just get in there and do it. That's how you become perfect. Miscavige changed yeah. all of that because he said, no, you must not step foot in an auditing room until you are perfect on every single procedure you're going to do. And this re might sound in theory like that's a good idea, but let me tell you that within three years of this being issued, there were no auditors being made. No one was getting through the training. And this was a huge problem. Well, thing about that, and then I want to go back to something else. Yeah. The thing about that is, um, not only I think that was a that was one consequence, but I think the bigger consequence was that it blew a hole in a lot of the longtime auditors um, that had been out there for a very long time, and they were, you know, the field auditor force. There were probably a couple hundred of those that were at the missions and the orgs. They had a lot of repeat customers, and in fact, I seem to recall reading just the other day, and maybe it was published on Tony's blog or something, about how Hubbard had a, a system for allocating, so you couldn't just go in and see your favorite auditor, right? That you know, because everybody wanted to go to the good ones, and nobody wanted to go to the bad ones, so he had to impose a ranking scheme. But basically, you know, all of those auditors who people loved just said, "Screw it, I don't need this anymore." Um, but the but the thing that to go back, Hubbard's approach is fundamentally the right one. It's how they train surgeons, even right. today. You know, they, they call it see one, do one, teach one, right? That you sit in, observe a procedure, the surgeon that's doing it narrates what he's doing and where he's trying to go with it, and then the next time you do it and the surgeon that, the, you know, the attending is gonna sit there and look over your shoulder and tell you when you're about to make a mistake, and then once you learn how to do these, then you go teach the next guy, and that helps you lock in the knowledge. And Miscavige's proposal is essentially the complete opposite of that. It is to write down every single move that you would ever make in a surgical procedure on a checklist, and then insist that that checklist be followed ad infinitum. But surgeons, you know, bodies are different. 
so you get in there and you're doing a heart bypass on somebody and there's an arterial venal malformation, the checklist doesn't cover it, you've got to improvise. Exactly. And that means you have to understand the basic theory on which you're operating so that you can improvise and you figure out what the hell's going on and you make it work. And that was yeah. how basically auditing was done through the first 46 years of Scientology. And now I'm not, you know, talking about the workability of auditing. I'm just commenting on this is all in the context of the world of Scientology that we're that we're talking about this stuff. Because, of course, I've had various things to say about whether auditing actually works or not. But it but what I'm talking about here is how Miscavige took, I don't know, it's just so funny, the things we're talking about here. Because, yeah, he took Hubbard's stuff, he twisted it and made it into his own thing as the young Turk on the block. And he, and he really forced this down on Scientology. And the, the, what you were just talking about, John... Uh, actually is exactly what happened because auditors who had been trained even directly under L. Ron Hubbard back on the ship or at St. Hill back in the 60s, every one of them was told, your certificates are invalid. They're no good anymore. We don't care that you were trained by L. Ron Hubbard. You're going to do this according to David Miscavige's instructions now because he's the one who figured all this out. And if you don't toe the line, we're just going to cancel your certificates. And for the field auditors who were actually doing this as a job, as a profession, that was a direct threat to their livelihood. And what ended up happening is a bit of a mass exodus. We were losing people. And again, in the bigger picture, I go, yay, but... In the context of the Scientology world, it was a disaster. And the only an, an analogy that occurred to me that I thought you guys might might be able to to comment on with this is remember when New Coke came out in the eighties, and it yeah. was like this new yeah. branded version of Coke, and it was an utter disaster. Like people hated it. That I think I think that within about a month or so, if I remember my marketing reading properly i think it was within about a month that they just canceled the entire thing and brought back old coke and they called it classic coke and new coke just ended up going by the wayside and they just sort of quietly you know emptied out their inventory of it and didn't make a whole lot more or something like that and classic coke picked back up because of the public outrage over it that same thing happened in Scientology, but the response within the world of Scientology was, by David Miscavige was not to say, oh, maybe I got something wrong here. It was the exact opposite. It was double down. You guys aren't doing this right. How dare you? And all those auditors who left, well, they were all just a bunch of suppressives anyway. Who needs them? And this kind of thinking is what propagated through Scientology. And I was right in the middle because I was running the continental implementation of this program for the Western United States. So I was seeing all of this happen in real time right before my eyes. And it was my job to enforce Miscavige's rules down on the on the public and on the staff. And And some of what I was getting back when people dared to speak up at all was, hey, this isn't really working so good. <laughs> And the statistics showed it wasn't working, and my job was to see that auditors were being made. And after three years, I myself started to question. It took me three years. I'm a slow learner, but I started going, man, I don't think Miscavige got it right. 
you know, and there was well, no recourse. There was nothing I could do. I find it interesting, Chris, and even stepping back again from the mechanics of it, it, it really reflects the approach to auditing between Hubbard and uh, Ms. Cavage really reflect their personalities implicitly. You know, Hubbard, he, to, for all his faults, he still saw himself as a savior of mankind. He had an empathy. There was an inherent empathy in the way that he looked to the world. And auditing was a way that he was going to, you know, fix the social and personal ills of the masses, right? As you alluded to earlier, Miss Cavage is not a warm, fuzzy guy. Right. You know, he's a he's a, a Philly boy, hard hitter, blah blah blah. And so it's you know, outside of my way or the highway, to him, it's always going to be a road process that has to be followed empirically. There's no accounting for uh, the caprice of human emotion, uh, or that we're all different, right? And and a good auditor is attuned to that, right? They go into that that auditing room knowing that you know. Uh, I'm going to be different than Chris Shelton or somebody else down the road rather than, okay, here's this box, this, this COB-defined box that everybody has to fit in. And if you don't, well, obviously you, the auditor, have mucked up because, you know, you're not attuned to the way I'm thinking, i.e. me, COB, rather than establishing that bilateral relationship between the auditor and the auditee, which is, at the end of the day, what this Scientology truly is all about, right? That, That's right that connection, that way of making this person whole. That's exactly yeah, and, right. And that, and that's, and that's very, that's very, very true. I've said auditing doesn't work and the tech doesn't work. So when people feel good out of auditing, it's not because the needle means that some thought happened and this earlier similar stack is, you know, whatever, all of the mumbo jumbo auditing. The people <laughs> that I've talked to who have said auditing worked on me, when you poke into it, it's always because there was a decent, kind, compassionate person listening to them talk about stuff. That's right. Yep. And and so those auditors who knew that exercising a certain amount of discretion about you know running some earlier similar stack to completion when the when the the preclear says that's all I got. There's no other earlier similars then they're going to feel good. On the other hand, you keep banging on them and going, no, there's more. You're full of shit. That's right. And adversarially taken after them. They're not going to feel good when they walk out of the room. And what Miscavige's whole plan did was, it was all about gaining control of the auditors, who I'm sure he sees as a bunch of cowboys doing their own thing, which is anathema to somebody like him who's a control freak. Um, and which is generally the case in cults, right? Because the whole thing is micromanaging people's thought processes and behaviors is that if you had started, and this really ties back to the new Coke thing, the new Coke decision was about competition with Pepsi. These guys were losing to Pepsi on taste tests. Um, people thought of Coke's flavor as too old fashioned. Pepsi had a better flavor, blah, blah, blah. And they made a decision to compete with Pepsi by changing the formula and they didn't adequately understand what the customers wanted. There is nothing in this whole program from the data series about customers. And in general, it's pretty clear that the whole data series thing, one of the unconscious biases in it is it's all about the staff screwing up or people screwing up. And right. in this case, the whole premise is auditors are screwing up because they didn't do enough drills and they didn't do enough drills because the people who trained them screwed up. So in other words, the entire auditing organization is 
inept and corrupt and needs to be hosed. And so when you have those two things, the auditors are screwing up because everybody that trained auditors screwed up. Basically, you kick the, the support out from under everybody. But the point is that the customer was never a part of the thought process to redo this. Nobody went out to everybody and did a real survey, like not one of the you know, completely lame-ass Scientology surveys like, <laughs> hey, would you like to come to the ship so that you can have your life work? You know, yes or no, send me the answer, right? Some of those pathetic things. No, but real customer research. And there's a lot of work that, that is involved. And I, I have some training in all of this stuff. But real customer research to find out what customers want was never done. That's right. And if they had done that, they would have seen that the number one thing is an empathetic, caring individual I can tell my problems to. The pre-clear doesn't care about the tech being applied standardly. They want a nice person to talk to who seems to care and makes them feel warm and fuzzy. That's and, that, you're, you're nailing it here, and I'm just sitting here nodding right now because you've you're literally gotten right to the heart of the matter with this and why Miscavige got such bad results and, with and, this. And what's, and, and so interestingly, I, I've just recalled uh, an experiment that was done many, many years ago, sometime in the 60s. So actually, Miscavige could have informed himself of this experiment and, and taken into account his decision. So how important is a caring, you know, sort of voice when you're trying, when you're trying to do therapy and feel better? And there was an experiment uh, uh, by a programmer or a computer scientist at MIT in artificial intelligence in, I believe it was either the late 50s or early 60s. The guy was Joseph Weizenbaum, and the program was called ELIZA. And it had a way of just mimicking uh, what you said, you know, so like, I hate my mother. And it knew how to understand what you were saying in terms of the grammar. And it would turn it around and say, why do you hate your mother? Or tell me more. And it was imitating a particular style of psychiatry. Um, I think it was a Rogers-style psychiatrist. And the thing was that even when people knew, so the, so the initial experiment was to find out if people could tell whether they were talking to a machine. So sometimes they would type back and forth to a real therapist, sometimes they would type back and forth to the computer. And what they discovered was that not only did people feel better after talking to the machine, but they even felt better in a later version of the experiment when they knew it was a machine they were talking to. Wow. So in other words, the appearance of compassion was key to feeling better. Right. And so it was I a, think also a, to you know so we, if we look at you know this is that's kind of uh, you know that's in a version of the Turing test, right? In computer science where you know you it's how difficult is it to discern if a human or a machine you're interacting with a human or a machine. Yeah. Exactly so right. a lot of this is uh, Miss Cavage's version of a Turing test and it's very unilateral. We have, you know, auditing is, as I said earlier, a bilateral process. But if you go back to Hubbard and his, his Boulevard letter, and we've talked about this before, about, you know, the responsibility of leaders. Yeah. You know, essentially that's a very unilateral proposition. You know, you this is what you in the organization, i.e. Scientology, this is how you need to support me, i.e. Hubbard at the time. So what, what McScavage is saying here in IG-22 is that, look, you – you rabble, you bunch of screw-ups, I'm protecting myself by in, in, in 
invalidating all that's everything that's gone before me so that we can now put some concrete steps in place that ensure my infallibility. And that infallibility, therefore, is what drives my ability to wield power effectively in this organization. Now, obviously, he's not saying this, but it's all there in Boulevard. And if you talk on the fact there was a post that I referenced in a, in when I was doing my analysis on Boulevard that Jeff Hawkins talks about how, in, I mean, Boulevard is as much a part of Miscavige as this IG-22 bulletin is, as far as laying out his roadmap about how he wants to be perceived and how he wants the organization to be a. That's exactly and right. And so That's if, exactly if we right. look at to, to JP's point about um, you know empathy and what the, the, the perceived value of customer satisfaction is, Miscavige said there's no customers here. This is a unilateral thing. This is the way it all flows downhill from here on out. That's right. And it certainly becomes a case after the debacle with Lisa McPherson. You know, when he's a CS supervisor, you know, all of a sudden he sees, and I think maybe we're getting ahead here, Chris, but much of what this is doing, if I, you know, the, the McPherson thing happened in 95, this, this document was written in 96, I think this is a, you know, a direct result of Ms. Cabbage running scared. He probably got hauled into a room with Rathburn and company by the attorneys and said, look, man, you better clean your act up because this whole thing with auditing is exposing you to a whole world of hurt legally. So he comes out with this missive, says, this is what we're going to do. We're going to clean up all this stuff, the golden age of tech. But meanwhile, we're going to start de-emphasizing auditing because it's too touchy-feely, blah, blah, blah. And we're going to start selling books. We're going to start moving the, this thing around a different way and look at multiple revenue streams, uh, and, which is kind of, an, a, you know, ironically a way of looking at customers, but only, again, a unilateral relationship. What can we get out of those customers rather than how can we service those customers? Exactly. So, and it was interesting know, to me in talking about this with you guys. This is why I love talking to you guys, because you have these these wonderful perspectives on this stuff. And it and it and um, the way that Miscavige then came out with new product, uh, because the auditing product was really no longer you know very viable and working for them because of Lisa McPherson and all of that, is he comes out with all these new books. But how does he frame that? That the framing of that entire briefing, another three hour long you know extravagant briefing on stage, was look at all these people who screwed it all up. And I had to come in and fix it and look at all this wonderful presentation I have now given you that, that this is, you know, my brand of Scientology without saying that. And of course he doesn't say that, but that is what he did. And, and he put his mark on it. And then the ideal orgs. Again, we've talked before about how he doesn't like people. Get people out of the way. Replace them with TV screens and audiovisual displays, interactive displays. And even well, replace the salespeople. Remember, that's a very unilateral delivery mechanism. Yes. Right. You that's know, right. come in here, and we're gonna we're gonna bombard you with all this stuff. And so, just listen again. Listen up. This is you know this is the way it's got to be. Even if you're coming, if you're new to the religion or our cult, as it were, this is this is how we this is how we roll. This is, Exactly. Right, it's a good point, um, JP, to talk about you know commas, your post <laughs> about you know the importance of, of how just in the minutia there is uh, a way to enforce behavior and control. Well, I think um, 
Yeah, there was. Uh, so, so what he's referring to, and Chris, if you could remember to put a link to this uh, in the YouTube uh, description and you know elsewhere um, on the Reason Life or on www.reasonedlife, um, I did a thing a couple weeks ago comparing the punctuation fetish of the Nexium cult, uh, which has been in the news a lot lately, which has its own punctuation fetish with Scientology's, you know, which is what Miscavige used to essentially invalidate all of the books. And it is a, that, that what it does, the whole point of it is to create a climate of fear that, oh my God, everything I've learned about Scientology is wrong because there were a couple of commas that were off that I didn't understand. That's right. And, and be that what's, but what's interesting is that, that this is to the outside world, it's like how feeble and how brittle is Scientology tech when a couple of commas can totally invert the meaning of everything. It's laughable. On the other hand, when you're inside and you've been through the thought control training that Scientology and other cults give you, this is like terrifying. Holy shit, everything I know, all of this work that I've put in over all of these years to understand how to be this Superman, you know, these powers that I don't yet have but I'm closing in on, might have been wrong. It's like, that's a pretty terrifying prospect. Well, it, it was actually, it was interesting being in the room when Miscavige was giving these briefings, both on the Golden Age of Tech and later with the books, because I'll tell you exactly what happened, is that, the, is that most of the Scientologists in the room experienced a feeling of relief. And the reason for that is because they are, were part of a system designed by L. Ron Hubbard that doesn't work. And they were aware, even if only on a very suppressed basis that it doesn't work that it doesn't work the way it says it's supposed to work that there are problems that there are issues that they don't get things that they have read from l ron hubbard because let's just face it there's a lot of shit l ron hubbard said that just doesn't make any sense and yet it's all supposed to be sensible it's all supposed to be a coherent integrated whole and it's supposed to always work all the time and yet these people have been involved with it for you know years maybe decades they have these doubts, they have these uncertainties, they've been building up inside of them, but they can't say anything about it because it's a cult. And when you speak out in a cult situation, you're the one who gets penalized. So the relief that they were feeling was here was Dear Leader on stage acknowledging something was wrong. They knew something was wrong. So here was an offered solution that was not any more right than any of Hubbard's drivel but they were begging to find some reason why they had been experiencing all this cognitive dissonance and couldn't say anything about it. So they glommed on to Miscavige's reasons, both with 96 and later with the books, and they ran with it. But, as I mentioned, within a couple of years, it was pretty obvious that Miscavige's solutions didn't make any more sense than Hubbard's did. And so people have been leaving Scientology in even more numbers as a result of this. Because he didn't really fix anything. He just imposed his own authoritarian brand on Scientology, which was already well, authoritarian no, to begin with. More accurately, not only did he not fix something, but he made it worse because yeah. he took away right. the reason to buy auditing services, which is compassionate human that makes me feel better exactly you know so he so he completely wrecked it in pursuit of you know his obsession with perfection 
and it's all about controlling the staff and controlling the auditors. Well, it's like, no, they didn't get a floating needle because you're not perfect, right? And keeping them in the persistent state of terror that he feeds off of. And that, that that's, that's how he you know, makes the culture so that he gets that emotional energy that's the high that, you know, that's his sort of raison d'etre to keep doing this. So this exposes the cynicism that underlies the entirety of the scam in Scientology. Right. Mm -hmm. Scientology is especially in the Miscavige era is is just reinventing or rebranding, as it were, the same old stuff. And it's just like the mob with cocaine is if you want to see if you look at if you know, we're we're trying to play by all these rules that says we never sell drugs. And in, in Scientology, we never alter the tech. Right. These are sacrosanct prohibitions against a certain type of behavior well young turks come along and say to hell with that we need to get more money coming in we need to get our revenue we need to bump we need to stat push all this great stuff mob terms you know we did okay with heroin but man this cocaine stuff boy we were on to something here next evolution crack cocaine right and then methamphetamine so we're just rolling with this dope thing and just rebranding it in a certain way in scientology that's all Miscavige is doing with the books, the basics, the tech. It's the same stuff, repackaged as new, shiny, improved. But more importantly, he's got people so looped into the control model here. And in the mob, it's just basically the you know street tax and enforcement protocols that have been around since you know the first gangster. Same thing. It, there, there are repercussions if you don't play by the rules. In yeah. mob terms, you know, you're going to get your storefront shot up or you're going to, you know, lose your corner drugstore, uh, your drug mart, i.e. veto, or, you know, you're going to run the risk if you're a user of, you know, we got the pure stuff. You go next door, you're probably going to, you know, get something in there that you're not going to want to do. You know, you're, you've got everybody hooked. Cults are no different, right? You got them hooked on the doctrine, you got them hooked on the belief, and you got them hooked by the prohibitions of behavior that are inculcated from the beginning. Same thing. The parallels are endemic across both institutions. So, uh, you know, Miscavige is a true dude. He's a mob operator. He gets this. He gets that at the end, behind all this is fear. And it's the fear of revenue on his end. And it's the fear in his quote-unquote customers that they aren't up on the latest thing or that they're missing something or they may have been deceived and now I'm coming along as a saver to rectify these perceived uh, faults with the old guard, right? right. And so, again, it's invalidation, it's projection, you know, it's not me, it's them or it's it's the old guy or it's whoever. Exactly. it well, all plays back to the same narrative of, of individual control, and, and which is just, I mean, that's, that is Miscavige in a nutshell. Well, let's start wrapping this up. And let me ask you guys both individually or, or together, however you want to answer this, how um, this final question here, which is now we see the pattern uh, very clearly with, with what Miscavige has been doing. I mean, he, he does the coup d'etat in the 80s. He then starts rebranding Scientology in his own image through the 90s and then through the 2000s. And it's been shrinking. We've pretty much acknowledged that. But I'm curious. I don't think he's going to change. I think anything that's going to happen in the future is going to be just more of the same because I think this is, you know, he's he's almost 60 years old or something. I mean, I don't think he's particularly into learning new tricks. 
where do you guys, from your sort of more objective outside view, see this going? How do you see this playing out with Miscavige at the helm running this organization the way that he's been running it, regardless of any specifics of new tech he brings along or repackaged courses he puts out? Because there's still more Hubbard material that Miscavige can repackage and put out. But but this pattern, what do you what do you guys think about this? Well, I'll, I'll start. I'll say, Miscavige isn't a Scientologist. He's he's you know he really never has been for probably since he's been at the top of the heap with RTC. Yeah. In fact, uh, our good friend Jeff Augustine has a theory that says, uh, at the end of the day, Miscavige hates Scientology and Scientologists. Exactly. I <laughs> Which agree. Is typical. I mean, when you look at a, at a grifter, they you know they have absolutely loathe their marks, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you look up, you're idiots, right? You let me do this stuff to you. So. I, you know, and and for his his faults, Miscavige is in good shape. He's fit. I mean, if you look at him from an actuarial standpoint, he'll be around for a while. Yep. It's up to him when he wants to pull the plug and go to the Bahamas and you know live off his ill-gotten gains. But um, I think, and and I'll I'll let uh, JP jump in here in a minute because he's certainly done a lot of work on you know the all the different end state or, or end of event horizons as we say in business. But I think. Uh, they certainly have the cash flow, although it's you know debilitating over time. That you know this thing is is a perpetual money machine. It always has been, and so um, where it's failing is in the intake. But yet that's in domestic terms. There's still markets abroad. If we look at it in economic terms, you've got Taiwan, you've got Russia, you've got places where people are still coming in that have cash. Uh, until there is, you know, there's equilibrium or there's some stasis there uh, in either the, the the people reappreciating the tech. I mean, there's there, it's, it'll go on until it, it basically extinguishes itself. Um, and it's because it, this stuff, as you said, it could be repackaged, it could be rebranded. Uh, yeah, we've got Scientology TV, but that's just another way of dissemination with somebody hanging on a, on a street corner with a pamphlet, right? Yeah. And there's you know, and it's so it's been ridiculed to the point of irrelevance. So it's going to be generational Scientologists that keep the thing afloat. It's going to be third world nationals that keep the thing afloat. It certainly ain't going to be the tech. It certainly ain't going to be RTC. And it certainly isn't going to be the domestic presence in the United States from what I can see. It's going to be the presence of the church exterior of the United States, certainly because they've also got a lot of cash abroad. That's the other thing you got to remember is that, you know, they've got res- you know, uh, reserves abroad that the IRS can't touch because of thing uh, stipulations that Hubbard set up back in the day uh, when he was floating around the Mediterranean. There's bank accounts all over the country, or all over the country, all over the world that are inviolate to the IRS just because of the way they were set up. So until that cash is you know, extinguished or the yanglings of the world, the tax attorneys figure out they're not, you know, it's not worth their time to defend the tax scam or there's a huge class action of some sort or a RICO action domestically, this thing will keep ticking along for a while, unfortunately. And I've written a lot over the years on what's the end game. And I think we are definitely past the point of no return. There's no chance that anything anybody can do whether it's Miscavige, somebody who deposes him in some palace coup, or anybody, some outside consultant coming in, uh, can change the game and say, if you do this, the business will start to prosper again. It's a product that's obsolete and that nobody wants. And it's a brand name 
that, as I've said many times, is more toxic than an armload of Ebola-coated kiddie porn. Um, that's, it's just not worth saving. Right. And so when you have a business in that shape, what do you do? You know, you just sort of accept irrelevance and you just kind of go along as best you can. And so I'm thinking of the example of U.S. Steel. Back in the day, U.S. Steel Corporation, 100 years ago, and up until probably 50 years ago, was a major, major driver of the U.S. economy, the steel industry in general, but U.S. Steel as the largest U.S. manufacturer was huge. They had at one point, you know, 400,000 employees. And I'm just looking at the chart today. They're irrelevant. The company's worth $6 billion, a tiny, tiny fraction of the New York Stock Exchange, whereas they would have been the most valuable company in America, you know, 80, 90 years ago. Uh, they have 30,000 employees. It's a tiny fraction of what it was. Nobody cares except for a handful of steel investors. Nobody really cares what they do. They don't have a hand in industrial policy. It's a quaint anachronism. And that's kind of what happens in business. You can limp along for a very long time, you know, making money, but being irrelevant. And I think that's what's going to happen to Scientology, that they will continue to limp along and be irrelevant to just about everybody. I don't see that, um, I don't see another Debbie Cook memo or golden age of tech with the, with what we've been talking about today coming along that drives a mass exodus. Um, I just don't see that happening. Uh, Scientology has a huge bureaucracy. If Miscavige got arrested for whatever, which I don't actually think is terribly likely, uh, if Miscavige got arrested and hauled out in handcuffs, I don't think that Scientology would go out of business. I, I really think that um, one scenario that I kind of like, and you know, one of the so one of the questions then is you say, okay, how many customers do they shrink down to before it's not worth opening the doors anymore? Mm -hmm. And the answer is it can get a lot smaller. We estimate that there's 15 to 17,000 Scientologists worldwide that are public and maybe 5,000 staff, including Sea Org. So 20 to 22,000 people in Scientology. Um, and I, a couple of years ago, I realized they don't need very many customers. They need a certain number of whales, right. but the emotional payoff for Miscavige is abusing the staff. Yep. And if Scientology's recruiting process is put orgs in out-of-the-way places that nobody can find, no signage, nothing to get them to go, to get them interested, and when they do come in, you plop them in front of a monitor, and then when they finish watching videos after however long that is, you don't talk to them to try to close the deal. Right. It's sales prevention operation. They're doing literally everything they can to prevent people from signing up. And so it's not about the membership, it's about the staff. And that, by the way, is why I've said on many occasions that if they stopped, uh, if the government shut off the R1 religious worker visa program, it would be a much bigger blow than losing the tax exemption because they would lose about, a, they would lose about half to three quarters of the employees at flag. That's a and really good no point. Longer, That's a very good point. And no longer be able to keep up the illusion that Scientology is successful. That is the paramount goal strategically that Miscavige is, is working towards, and that that is what his legitimacy rests on. And that's what the legitimacy of all of Scientology rests on as well. 
It's we're a religion that makes you successful. And if we make you successful by giving you these superpowers, we have to be successful as well. So he is all about this Potemkin village of success, the ideal orgs, beautiful buildings. Yes, they help him spend the money to stay ahead of the IRS, but it's all about burnishing tangible proof of success. I think just and, to that point, too, is that there's a couple things that in, in JP's dissection there that come to mind is that if you look at where Scientology is recruiting exclusively from now, they're authoritarian and or aspirational cultures. You know, the, the Chinese and Taiwan and Russia, you've got, they're both, you know, very, they don't... It, the narrative of Scientology isn't as obtuse or as, as obscene as it would be here in a more free-flowing society where you're, you're, it's not as heavily controlled. Russia is a, has a tradition of top-down authoritarianism. Also, there's a middle, you know, emerging middle class that's aspirational. So, I mean, they're right for this kind of stuff. Plus, there's always been a history of mysticism and, and cult behavior in Russian society for, I mean, going back beyond, you know, back to Ivan the Terrible, certainly in Rasputin and people like that. And China, you've got Confucianism, but yet there's also Falun Gong. You've got these other things that, that play to the, to the things that Scientology it can exploit so it's and mexico has a you know strong history of cultism uh, cultic behavior and it's another strong recruiting uh, loci for for scientology so it goes back to exactly what jp's talking about in that they're gonna cynically target who they think plays to the current narrative and and just milk them for all it's good meanwhile you've got this whale lair that's um being catered to in the lost leader program of the ideal org and all these other things that uh you know as long as a certain uh segment of, of the potential population is being kept warm and fuzzy it's going to just kind of chuggle not chug along but uh well, you know sclerotically and, poke along <laughs> and in fact you know here's here's something there's a there's a document, and if you can dig up the link to this, um, I think it's on ESMB, and it was by Jeff Augustine, and it was in 2008, and it was called Monastery Scientology. Oh, yeah. And while some of it is not correct, um, a lot of it is still absolutely bang on. And in the document, Jeff said basically, they're going to let go of any outer org, you know, the Keokuk org, or the Chicago org, or anything like that. They're going to be basically mausoleums. And it will be about a religion for the rich, and it will be in L.A. and Clearwater, and probably, ultimately, I'm going to guess, uh, he, if he were to revisit the piece, he would say, it's really going to be Clearwater, because there really aren't any luxury, cool facilities out in Los Angeles that are really worth traveling from uh, Mexico or Taiwan or Russia to visit. So, so essentially, it's going to be a theme park of Scientology in Clearwater, and you notice that... Well, that's, that's exactly what I laid out shortly after I started talking about Ideal Orcs, is that was exactly what was going to happen. Yeah, and, and by the way, it is on Sci and Jeff's uh, Scientology Money Project blog. But, but basically, um, you know, if you look at the fact is Tony Ortega has, has really, um, uh, you know, pointed this out, that the Feshbacks, a bunch of West Coast people... And even Travolta, Travolta's place in Ocala is like 90 miles from Clearwater, and yet he bought a place in Clearwater very recently, and uh, Tony was able to expose that through the front corporation that he used. Uh, Kirstie Alley, same thing. She's, you know, she's retreated, uh, and even Tom Cruise. 
a lot of Tom Cruise's properties have gone on the market. I haven't tracked whether they've sold, but his house in Telluride was, I believe it was sold. Uh, his house in New York, I believe it certainly was up for sale a couple of years ago. So he's been retreating from this real estate empire. And I believe even his house up in the Bel Air or Beverly Hills, you know, which is his main operating base, may have been up for sale or at least whispered uh, credibly, you know, by not, not by tabloids. So a lot of these guys are, I think, already, you know, in that mode of retreating. So, so Scientology remains viable but irrelevant if they have 100 rich members and 2,000 staff to wait on them hand and foot. It's almost like they're circling the wagons in a way. <laughs> it's interesting. Well, again, that's exactly what I've been saying for quite for at least the last uh, year and a half or so. Is that's exactly what's going on. But what's exactly but what's critical about this is this is a this is a an inversion of what usually happens in failing businesses. What usually happens in failing businesses is you cut staff to try to titrate the amount of people you have to the amount of business you have. Whereas here, you're cutting members to get only the rich ones that you can utterly control and you keep the staff even if you end up somewhere close to operating losses. Right. Don't forget, you know, the best estimate that I've been able to come up with is that they've got somewhere around a billion and a half in reserves. Um, that number may be a little lower due to litigation payouts and increasingly may be nibbled away at because of, uh, you know, paying for ideal orgs where funding isn't sufficient. So, so if we believe that Scientology is running around 250 million a year in total revenue, and that currently their profits as a percentage of revenue, or what we call operating margin, that that's down and that's maybe 20% of revenue, which is pretty damn good for a business that actually has to pay above minimum wage. Um, there aren't a lot of businesses in the real world that do 20% operating margins, but you know, these guys probably were doing 40 to 50% operating margins at their peak because they had such low labor costs. So, so this business can shrink a bit more and still remain profitable. But even if they end up losing 20 million a year with a billion six in the bank, this thing can go on losing a little bit of money every year without bothering anybody, you know, because they've got 80 years worth of reserves out there. Miscavige it will it will outlive Miscavige, which is basically the the idea. After that, he doesn't care. Yeah, exactly. He's not gonna he's not gonna groom a successor in order to preserve the organization. Just as Hubbard didn't groom a successor, he appointed the two people that were his caretakers. Who I know Annie Broker was beloved and all that, but let's face it, those guys were nitwits. <laughs> right. Exactly. And those were the successors appointed after a probably 14-second thought process by a drug-addled guy who was about to have another stroke. So there was no thought to the continuity of the organization. Every significant business of any size has a continuity plan of what happens if the CEO's plane crashes. You know, there is a plan. And... There's never going to be a plan with Scientology because you'd have to bring somebody in that would be a threat to Miscavige in order to train them. That's just not going to happen. You know, exactly. there is no backup guy in North Korea. Exactly. And and so the thing is, so what that brings me to is sort of the last point. I know I've gone, uh, been going on for a while here, but the last point is this. My model is that membership declines at a slower rate than before. There's no quantum event on the horizon. 
but there could be. And inherently, we cannot predict what a quantum event might be of that right, sort. Right. Um, we just inherently can't know. There could be a, a, an event that drives a fair number of people out of, uh, out of Scientology. And it could be uh, that Miscavige dies of a heart attack randomly. And that's a problem because he's the guy that's got access to all the bank accounts. So, you know, there's not enough cash to keep that whole operation running, even with the $0 paychecks that people are getting. And so if Miscavige does have a heart attack and keels over, um, there's nobody else who's got the authority to sign paychecks or, more importantly, utility bills, elevator maintenance, all of that other stuff. So there could be an exogenous shock that, that really hammers the cult, but um, we can't predict it. Right. And it would be unwise. One last thing too would be, it ends up, it's almost like it becomes a you know a patent holding company. You know, you've got the RTC, you've got all this technology, you've got these trademarks that just will be in uh, perpetuated in perpetuity, if you will, uh, because it's you know some form of intellectual property that will always be gaining license revenue or what have you until the whole thing implodes. So I, you know, there's there's still there may be Miscavige's management of money. But yet, there's also an there is some form of, of operating entity in there that's keeping this thing afloat. Certainly, say Author Services, which is a for-profit entity that could feed this thing. And who says that there's not prohibition or some kind of uh, stipulations that's been agreed to by some of the larger whales that have you know between Miscavige for some succession? Maybe not so much as far as you know a a hierarchical uh, succession, but more and perpetuating the thing from a financial standpoint you know it's i think there's a lot of different ways that it can play out financially but i think jp's correct in that there's i don't think there's anything on the horizon that's going to sit there and all of a sudden yank the, the, the rug out from scientology and any certainly in the next 30 40 years as we wrap this show up i want to i want to say that it is precisely this kind of work that has that in a way is evergreen because there are always going to be groups like this. We're talking very Scientology specific stuff, but the fact of the matter is that there are 5,000 plus destructive cults out there, some of them religious in nature, some of them sports and politics in nature and various other things, but the mechanisms and control and those sort of things are all the same from one group to the next to the next. So when you educate yourself about a group like Scientology, which has a fantastic number of control mechanisms in it, you're educating yourself about all of these groups, and you're educating people about how to avoid the pitfalls and traps of them, so that they, and, and cults in general have become a bit of a hot topic over the last couple of years, I think somewhat because of Scientology, and I think some other things. And so we're, the, the public awareness of this is higher, I think, now, than it has been in a very long time. And not the 80s awareness of, oh my God, satanic cults are going to take my kid, because there was a lot of nonsense and fear-mongering going on in that period of time. I'm talking about an awareness of what's actually going on with these groups and how they actually work. And it's because guys like you step up and take part in things like my show and other, you know, you started your own blog, you've talked with Jeffrey Augustine. That kind of work is valuable. And I just wanted to put that out there because I, while Scientology might be on the decline, I definitely agree with you that it is. 
That's not to say that Nexium and other groups like that aren't going to crop up tomorrow or the next day or next year, and they're going to need to be public are going to be warned and, and made aware of this. And I think the more work we do, like, like what we're doing, I think the more long-term benefit we give out there. That's, I think to that you know. point, too, is, you know, Hannah Arendt talks about the banality of evil. And the thing we have to be careful of is that we don't allow this behavior, certainly in Scientology or next, to become the status quo because it is, you know, it's, it's, it's one of these things where, yeah, it's out there, but we, we have to keep digging on it, even though there's a presumption that maybe we've hit rock bottom. We haven't. Um, That's right. Because it just, it's as you said, there's, you know, this vast amount of, uh, of belief, cultic behavior out there, what have you. And every, what we've been trying to do, and I think we've done a good job, is change the narrative. It's certainly been my grail is to change the narrative about the way we talk about Scientology or, you know, the corruption of the 503C process in that these are transnational criminal organizations. They're not churches. They're not cults. They are behaving like like mob-owned businesses. There's an organized structure here that has nothing to do with faith or belief. Their, their businesses are corrupt businesses. And so I'm, I think what we've, we've done is put a different set of tools around these things to use as analysis and, and, and data constructs that uh, make it easier for the general public to understand in terms that they can relate to. It's one thing to live in the rarefied air of academia and talk about, you know, new religious movements and all this stuff. It's another to figure out that this is a scam. It's no different than, uh, you know, oxidized water, any of the stuff that's out there right now. Pyramid scams, Ponzi scams, what have you. And that they are totalitarian mechanisms that haven't changed since the days of... Uh, Hitler really uh, you know I, not to, to get into the whole Godwin's law thing but there are the things there are propaganda you know owning the narrative all these things that are about control in societies and certainly in the uh, somewhat quasi-authoritarian vibe that we have going on right now in the political spectrum so it lends itself to wanting to believe in things that necessarily aren't rational nor are they good for us so the more that we keep exposing that on a, on a basis that is understandable to the to the masses or the world at large, I should say. I think it's good. We can't we can't just throw in the towel because it's nothing's happening. Stuff is happening. It's just it depends to at what level. And you know, again, the sunshine is the best disinfection disinfectant. So if we're disinfecting on a daily basis, I think we're doing okay. Agreed. All right, guys. I'm going to wrap this up now. Thank you very much for taking the time and uh, patience. We had a little pre-show drama with the, with the video, which is why we went audio only. So again, I actually want to express uh, thanks to both of you for, for helping me out with this and putting your ideas out here. Uh, they have been very, very informative. Always a pleasure, Chris. Happy to help. We're having, yeah, this is always fun. Awesome. So let's do it again soon. Absolutely. And um, while we might not be talking about the data series again, I'm sure some other topics will come up. Any comments, questions, feedback, good, bad, or sideways, leave it in the uh, comment section below on YouTube or at sensiblyspeaking.com. And please do take some time on whatever platform you're using to listen to my podcast to give me a rating and review because, um, you know, I always like the kudos. (laughs) And if you don't like what I'm doing, I want to know about that too so I can uh, make improvements. And with that, we will wrap up this show. Thanks for coming around. I'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye.